What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Viri Tagawal, and let's get started. It can be, you know, 4.30 and you're just talking about what pieces, you know, you're sort of preparing to go into print, but they can be completely different to what the work you've done that morning. And you might have done, you know, three, four, five stories that morning, and then you've got to come up with completely new ones that are breaking new billion-dollar deals for the, the paper. You're talking about that at five, five o'clock and you've got to get the paper out by seven. That's Yolanda Redrup. And in this episode, explore your curiosity about media, journalism, and how the world of news operates. Learn about how Yolanda made her way into journalism and how you can too. We uncovered the process for writing an article, right from how to get started on a blank piece of paper, to what software journalists use to editorial process. And learn about how this varies based on the section of the newspaper. Yolanda's involved with. For example, street talk, having a varied process to a tech piece. I asked Yolanda about the important questions you're wanting to know, including how do VCs get their capital raise featured in the AFR, how to nurture relationships to ensure strong sources, and don't miss out on a fantastic perspective Yolanda shares about the biggest unknowns of her role and the questions she gets asked the most. Please enjoy. Yolanda Redrup, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have you on. We haven't had someone from the journalist, journalism and media space, so keen to get into that topic and share it with our listeners. A good place to start would be some context on yourself. So where were you born and where do you live now? Yeah, sure. I'm Melbourne, born and bred, always lived here. I did a short stint in high school over in the UK, did an exchange program there, but that's sort of the, the longest I've sort of ever lived somewhere else. Um, a little bit about myself, I have been a sort of, my whole career has been in journalism, but going back to university days, I was actually a swimming teacher. So mm. a bit of a departure from what I'm doing now, but yeah, I was a keen swimmer growing up. And how did you make your way into journalism? Do you remember your first role? Yeah, I've always had an interest in it. I was one of those rare people going back to when I was sort of 13 years old. I pretty much set out at the time that journalism was what I wanted to do and I did all my research as a teenager going through high school about what the best courses were and where I wanted to go to university and I'd sort of set up this whole plan for myself and for the large part I didn't really waver from that you know I decided I wanted to do journalism at RMIT and that was the you know I sort of set about doing the right classes and and getting the grades to sort of get into that course and in my final year of high school I was a communications prefect and ran a lot of the school publications. Then even before I'd sort of started my journalism degree, I actually did, uh, I'm not even sure if it still exists now, but I did, I got paid to do some reviews and uh, sort of fun youth-based content for a, a publication at the time that was called Youth Central and it didn't pay much, but it was more than nothing, which was uh, really the only thing else on, on offer at any publications at the time. So that was probably my first sort of, you know, kind of pseudo job in the industry. And then went through the RMIT course, came out the other side, had done a bunch of internships there at places like Cal- Crikey and at Wind News down in Ballarat. 
and then ended up getting a job at one of the sort of sister publications to Crike. It was called Smart Company, still around today. They do small business news, also have quite a focus on startups, which I report on a lot. And that was my first proper job out of university. Now, there might be listeners curious about a career in, in journalism or career reporting on startups and and one of the reasons for doing this show is to showcase different career paths because there might be a lot of unknowns that they might not know about so if a, if a listener's in university or maybe they're in their professional career but they want to transition across into what you're doing or in the footsteps of aspiring to do what you're doing at the AFR what would you advise them like what's a good path how can they build that experience where they are today We've actually got quite a lot of people working at the Fin in particular that haven't come from a traditional sort of journalism Mm. background. I'd say I'm actually more of an outlier at the paper, having done a Mm. university degree in journalism and come up through the ranks that way. But we've got plenty of former sort of lawyers in particular, you know, a handful that used to be consultants or had done journalism, then gone into consulting and come back. It's quite a mixed bag, often with sort of a professional services kind of background. So if there's a listener out there that sort of fits into that and is thinking that journalism might be for them, I'd say the best things are to sort of stay across all the news and read widely and then start reaching out to people, you know, tea up coffees, try and sort of get to know people in the industry, get your name out there so that when a job opening comes up, they might think of you and then if you're still reasonably young obviously keep an eye out too for when some of those more junior positions come up be it a training trainee program the age has got an intake they've done this year or a sort of breaking news kind of role or a national reporter if you're coming from a professional background you might be have to be willing to take a pay cut to get in the door but it's a really rewarding job so i'd say it's worthwhile <laughs> it's funny hearing you say that because now being a podcaster which is a form of journalism from what i understand people often ask how i got into it and i go i never studied literature in school i was pretty average in english and it was never really a part so i think as we'll talk shortly in our conversation, I think that'll be quite interesting how journalism has become a bit decentralized, one could say, where there's more pathways and more independent forms to do it without having to need a a big masthead to do it under. Maybe another part that I'd love to cover and and go into some detail is a process around journalism, particularly around writing a piece. And for listeners, before we went on air, we were talking about some of the processes and you're saying how you need to do sources and get leads and, and have a number of conversations. If we hypothetically think of a piece you're writing, say you're writing about a podcast and you found this new podcast, how would you go about, like, what would be your first step? And is there a topic that you choose yourself or do you sit down with your team and decide, like, can you give us a bit of color in that process? Yeah, definitely. It's a, the the process is quite varied and it does depend on what you're working on. Your process for writing a long form feature, for example, will be completely different if you're doing a, a breaking news story or a fourth take of a news story. A good example is during earnings season, which is when all the big listed companies report their um, six monthly sort of results. In earnings season, if it's a big company like CSL or a WiseTech or an Atlassian, then you have to get a first take up in only five minutes. It will be bare bones, 
getting a really speedy take up and then the challenge will be in working out what angles to keep developing and what you want the final version of print to be but that could be the third iteration of that story you've done for that day and so what you need to get in a five minute take is completely different to what you want the 700 word story to be in for print but if we take a step back and look at something that I write quite frequently which would be around sort of startup news capital raises a, a process for that would be around you know first of all hearing about the raise that could be that they've reached out directly or I've been talking to a contact and they've sort of told me oh I've heard you know this company's raising and I reach out to the founder um, usually we'll come to some kind of agreement around you know when they're happy for us to go out the news I always like things to be on an exclusive basis so I try and get in there first so that I can say look I know this is happening I'd like to be the first to break the story and then we sort of can work together on the timing. Um, set up an interview. Usually I will have for a piece like that and I've written a lot of them an angle in mind. It'll be for a news story, you know, you've got the raise figure, you've got who the investors are. I always like to put in a bit of the backstory of the company and the founders, what they do, how the technology works, and then you can sort of weave in some of the bigger themes that are happening at the time. So a big one of late has been skills shortages um, and the war on talent. Obviously, rewind to 2020 and it was how companies were managing the pandemic. If you go back and, and look through the stories of the past couple of years, you can quite easily see how we'll weave in some of those big themes to all of the interviews that we do. How much of your conversations would you say would be inbound versus outbound? It's a real mix. And I have to say, particularly for the type of work I do, that I think a lot of the value you have as a journalist is in your network. That's kind of mm. our currency. And that's there's just a lot of value in that. And so even the stuff that I get inbound, a lot of those approaches I only get because I know people and mm. I know investors and I've put in years of work to be able to get to that point where founders will be like, right, I want to, I want Yolanda to break the news or I want the AFR to break the news. So there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes to sort of get those inbound approaches. But it's probably, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a real mix. I, I don't think I could put a precise figure on it because it's sort of not even direct to inbound versus outbound. But if you say, you know, 30% would be pitches and you'll get another 30% from you going out and making inquiries and hearing about that. And then you might have 30% of your workload again that's sort of tied up on addressing some of those big themes of the day and working out how you respond to things. So yesterday was a great example. We had a, a lot of takes in the paper around Twitter and I yeah. helped out on one of those. So some of that is sort of reactive as well. So it's sort of inbound, outbound and reactive. And going back to the process, if we visualise I'm really curious about this. Like you visualize a blank piece of paper or a, or a Word doc or the software you use. What process do you use to to put context in and put the words down? Like do you first think of who's going to read this and then you work backwards and go, this is how I'm going to contextualize the information? Because I think of me, like I write an amateur newsletter every now and then, and the hardest part is starting. Like you've got all this information, but how do you distill it down to words and make it catchy? Like some people say the first sentence needs to be a hook. Is, is there a certain secret to that? It's a good question. And 
one again that's kind of different on, for each piece is when it comes to doing something like a cap raise it's almost becomes a little bit more formulaic and you kind of know the key information you have to get in at the top but you do want to make that lead part exciting you want it to be something that captivates people and encourages them to keep reading throughout the story when you're in university they often tell you about the sort of who what where when why and how and you have mm. to get all those details into the, your first par and I don't necessarily agree with that I think I learned when I was actually in the job that people don't really think through if they've got those all those <laughs> things in the lead and if anything you kind of learn that you want to spread out some of that detail so that people still have a reason to read through the whole story because you get metrics now and engagement and how many people read to the end of an article and if you give them everything straight away then you're probably not going to keep them by the end of the article so you do want to sort of spread out some of that key information um but for a feature, I think that's a really good way to look at this question because your process means that you've got a whole lot more information. If, you've, if you're writing 4,000 words, then you might have done the better part of sort of, you know, seven to ten interviews. You'll have spent hours and hours researching and you'll have, have all these different pieces of the story that need to come together and you've got to find a way in. And I think that point about getting the top of your story right and the rest of it flowing from there is absolutely true for me. I need to get the beginning right and then all of a sudden I can write the rest of the story. And I usually find for a feature my way in will be through a really good personal story, not from my own but from someone I interviewed or an anecdote or something that really sort of captures someone's imagination and is sort of like that starting point to lead them through the rest of the piece. And how does the independence work when it comes to putting turning from draft to actually being in the paper like you see it in the movies where the writers put together a draft and then sit down with I think they call the editors or you have a meeting together and you get certain approvals and you get declines and often it can seem quite ruthless is that how it actually works in reality uh, yes and no but you know everyone's quite time poor these days so I'd be lying to say that every story is rigorously you know edited and torn to shreds and you're probably not doing your job very well if if that's the case because mm. you need to be able to file clean sharp correct accurate copy that doesn't have to be completely rewritten <laughs> otherwise you're not going to last very long at the paper but when it comes to a feature certainly there'll be multiple iterations I'm working on one at the moment for the Richless edition of our magazine and I've done two sort of takes now and I expect there'll be a third in there. And for the magazine, you've got those longer time horizons. So I don't have to have something turned around in five minutes or an hour. I'll have had a couple of weeks of doing interviews, writing it, pulling it together. And then we'll be like, okay, so we've addressed all these things, but you have you thought about this angle or this question. And you go back and you find another source that can bring in a new angle and there's a, it's a, a, lo a much longer process, I suppose, bringing a, a magazine feature to life than it would be a quick, sharp news story. You mentioned earlier about covering tech. Now, I'd imagine as part of your role, you probably use a lot of tech with your data collection, with your interviews. What's the process there? Like, have you got certain programs or software that you use that you can talk to? Because I think listeners would be curious about that. I think any journalist you ask from the past sort of two years would have the same answer to this one, but the biggest game changer has definitely been the invention of Otter. It's mm. just totally changed the game. You can be sitting in doing an interview and I used to just 
I'd almost dislike doing interviews in person because I'd be recording and couldn't accurately take notes at the same mm. time. So then you'd have to go back and transcribe your interviews and that meant either committing a few hours doing it yourself, usually out of hours because you don't have time to do it during the day or having to pay a trip, you know, a transcription service to sort of do it for you, which was obviously a cost. But with Otto, it's... It, you know it has a good enough autonomous engine that it can detect different accents and different intonations and it gets more and more accurate over time and you can be having a live recording and also having a transcript written for you so it's definitely uh, saved me a lot of time that's super cool i'll have to definitely check that out i might start using that for some of my work and and i know you you cover street talk and also you cover the tech section of the of the financial review is there anything different about the two processes? Like, again, for listeners, I understand you were doing the Street Talk edition recently and you spent a lot of time on that. Is that more time intensive versus writing one article about a startup or a capital raise? Yeah, they're different. And I think it's probably good to know, too, that even within tech, I file for the daily paper. So my average sort of, my average sort of output would be more like, you know, two, three, sometimes four pieces a day on any given day. So we're always under quite a bit of um, time pressure. But for street talk, it's a different beast because of needing to respond to the, you know, trading halts and breaking news in the morning. And for anyone that doesn't know, street talk is the deal section of the paper, looking at M and A and private equity, and they do a bit on sort of VC as well. But it's very sort of deals focused, and you've got sort of a peak morning period. And then you've got a sort of quieter middle of the day where you've got time for, you know, having catching up with contacts having a lunch with someone and then you've got another really peak period at the end of the day and it can be you know 4 30 and you're just talking about what pieces you know you, you're sort of preparing to go into print but they can be completely different to what the work you've done that morning and you might have done you know three four five stories that morning and then you've got to come up with completely new ones that are breaking new billion dollar deals for the the paper and you're talking about that at five five o'clock and you've got to get the paper out by seven so it's a it's a whole different kind of time pressure what's the biggest unknown about the work like when you catch up with friends or you're at barbecues what do people ask you like what are the most common questions you get about the role you do or the outcomes of your role oh that's a tough one um I get different questions if it's someone from my kind of age demographic versus if I'm talking to my grandma, for example. And I do actually sometimes do the ABC's uh, weekend breakfast program. And part mm. of the reason I, I go on that and it'll be a short sort of five-minute news analysis, analysis segment. But I know it's one of the few times my grandma will get an insight into what I do <laughs> as a journalist. It's a bit more uh, relevant to her, I guess. Um, but when it comes to my friends, I'll get questions around you know what the hot startups are of the day I've got one friend at the moment who works in a professional services background and she's been thinking about making a jump into startups and a lot of them will ask me about you know which companies have good employee share schemes mm. how to navigate working out a, a startup that's got legs and one that doesn't I think for any person thinking about making a transition from a corporate career into a startup one of the biggest things is the risk of doing that and the risk of if the company doesn't pan out because attractive employee share schemes are one thing but they're only mm. on offer because they do contain that extra bit of risk when making a decision to sacrifice some salary and work for a new business so yeah probably the most frequent questions from my sort of demographic are around which companies have the most promise 
That uh, reminds me of like the point of relationships because I'm sure people would assume that you know everyone in the ecosystem and you can make introductions and and I sometimes get that as well. People just assume that you know everyone, but as you would know, relationships don't work like that. Sometimes you do a piece and that's the end of the relationship or you keep in touch. And if you have a question, you reach out in the future, but you don't catch up on coffees every fortnight, every month and, and talk about life. How does that work in, in, in your role specifically? Like the balance between just doing the piece and going, let's keep in touch versus actually building a relationship and keeping them as a source of news and information ongoing. Yeah, it is a balance and there are so many founders that it's impossible to Mm. have regular catch-ups with everyone. So you do have to kind of be a bit selective and work out, okay, is this a company or a founder that I think could be extremely successful and going to be really worthwhile, you know, keeping in contact with and checking back in with. It's not going to be every week or even every month, but even every quarter to see what they're up to, keep that line of communication open, stay front of mind so that when there is news, you'll be the one they think to come to. And I do do that, but it is, it's not with everyone. So, and I get, people often ask me how many sort of pictures or emails I get and I'm getting, you know, a couple hundred a day and Mm. it's a lot to go through and I can't reply to everyone and equally I can't sort of invest the time in maintaining every relationship. So you do just have to be a little bit selective and work out, okay, I think this business has legs. I think they could be really successful a few years from now. I'm going to put in the effort to sort of keep up that relationship. It almost feels like you're you're doing an investor slash a journalist, right? Because you're building conviction yourself in, in these companies. You have to to some degree because you don't want to be, you know, because often people will think that the cap rate stories are quite positive and, you know, founders want to be featured in them, but you don't want to be doing those stories on every business and there's so many of them and particularly when it's the smaller raises, you just literally can't. There's too many of them these days and nowhere near enough journalists for them all to get coverage. Um, but, you you know, the ones that you're sort of investing in, it's, it's a good feeling when those companies end up being successful. And I imagine investors would feel the same way. Like, you you know, those are the ones that you sort of want to be doing those sort of more profile pieces on. One of the questions I often get, like talking to people in the community, in the startup community, and, and it's a, a pessimistic take, I feel, hopefully you can demystify it, is that people assume a lot of these newspaper platforms are sort of VC notebooks where VCs do a capital raise and the next morning you see it on the newspaper. Um, and I'm sure you get this question quite a bit as well. Can, can you maybe unpack that and tell us what the truth there is? Like, do VCs have to go through a process to get their startup in your newspaper or do you have certain slots per year? There's definitely not certain slots. There's no formal process. It really comes down to if something we deem is worth covering or not. And there's relationship management there too. So, you know, sometimes I could do a a piece that's a bit of a smaller raise, but I know it's on the backdrop of a larger one that's coming down the track that I'm really going to want to cover. So there is a little bit of relationship management there, but it's definitely not sort of a VC notebook. And um, it's, you know, I think a lot of the raises do get covered, but they do in that this is a huge amount of money it's a growing industry it's last year there was um you know upwards of 10 billion dollars worth of deals that was done in vc which is you know three times that of you know only a few years ago Mm. and it's only continuing to grow there was you know 
$3 billion kind of quarters that were happening, you know, in this first quarter of this calendar year. And I think it was the second quarter of the, the calendar year in, in 2021, they were over $3 billion of deals. This is real people's money at the end of the day. And it's going into these companies and be it money that's come from super funds or family offices. It's a huge amount of wealth and not all of these businesses will work out. So we need to be sort of covering the whole the whole journey and the whole trajectory so it won't always be positive stories and plenty of them will know and listeners to this might have seen that we had a piece on Canva having their valuation marked down mm. so as much as we'll cover the, the sort of the ups it's our job to cover the downs so it's not always going to be positive coverage but they are the big sort of stories of the day yeah it goes back to the saying that journalism is not a popular job yeah, if you're doing a popularity <laughs> contest, don't be a journalism because you don't be a journalist because you probably piss a few people off every now and then. And you, and you mentioned about how the ecosystem has grown. I know you've been in covering tech for almost a decade in Australia, and you uh, you kind of started at the perfect time when the ecosystem first started growing, and and Blackbird and a number of other firms raised their first funds in 2012, 13. What, what's been the biggest change that you've observed, whether it's your role or the information you see nowadays? Just the sheer scale. Like I sort of said before, with that $10 billion plus figure, that's astonishing to think of in the context of how the size of the ecosystem just, you know, a couple of years ago. I think I'm trying to remember the precise figures, but if we go back to sort of 2017, I'm quite confident there were numbers from back then that would have put the total deal value for the year in Australia at closer to 500 million, possibly mm. even a touch less. So the fact that in that really tight short period of time, we're now doing $10 billion worth of deals from local family founded companies is just astonishing. So the scale is just completely different. Thinking back to when I first started out and I was at Smart Company and I used to run a segment called Diary of an Entrepreneur. I would talk to founders about their days and, A, there was a lot of founders actually back then that weren't sort of traditional sort of tech founders with I'd be thinking more like, you know, Janine Ellis from Boost Juice and the sort of first cohort of founders that didn't even necessarily have that tech background. But the raise sizes that we'd cover back then would be, you know, $2 million, $3 million, $5 million was quite a big deal, whereas now frequently seeing sort of Series A rounds that are above 20, I've recovered seed rounds that are $16 million, which has just sort of been unheard of back when I first started out. And every quarter we're seeing rounds that are $100 million plus. Those are just numbers that didn't exist. They, they the, the ecosystem here couldn't have funded deals of that size a decade ago because you know, we were talking, looking at Blackbird and, you know, I think their first fund was closer to like $29 million no. or, or something like that. And, you know, they did, we just didn't have the money a decade ago. So the fact that we do now is such a huge difference. And that comes from the early supporters. So thinking of, you know, Mike and Scott from Atlassian, not only did they, did we have them as this sort of picture of success for founders to aspire to, but they put money into Blackbird. They were part of that sort of, the sort of, early foundations of that group and, and still are and they also you know were supporters of Startmate and I remember in the early days Mike was a a mentor and he isn't anymore mm. but he was very big in sort of building up that foundational ecosystem and then we had programs that came about like the Melbourne Accelerator program out of Melbourne University and that was very successful in helping inspire a group of sort of Melbourne founders places like Fishburners were created in Sydney even thinking about, you know, on Facebook and all these groups, I think the Sydney Startups Group 
would have existed back around 2010, but I think going back to sort of 10, 2012, 2013, they would have only had a couple hundred members and now they're approaching 30,000. So, you know, every part of the ecosystem's grown in that time, but no part could have grown without the other. It's all very interlinked. So the the quality of founders we have coming through now are because there's the amount of capital support them and then there's the infrastructure layers around that. And likewise, there's also the the talent too that have come from companies like a culture amp or an Atlassian yeah. or a safety culture that can then learn those skills around scaling and building out functions and then take that and put it back into some of these newer companies that have been created today. So fascinating seeing that journey from the early days to where it is now. And and on your point on Blackbird and StartMate, if listeners want to find out more, Nikki was on the show. We've had Batco and also Nick Crocker. So please do enjoy that. And Nikki actually speaks in detail about the number of rejections he got and how venture was a dirty word back in 2012. So that's fascinating. Now, if we zoom out and talk about journalism and talk about one thing I'm always curious about, about your own learning process like are there certain publications that you follow or certain journalists you follow whether in Australia or overseas that kind of you learn from? Yeah, I mean, it's good to read, read widely generally. So I certainly, you know, try and keep an eye on what all the sort of US-based tech journals are doing in particular. You know, I'll, I'll follow TechCrunch and I'll read Taylor Lawrence and she's done some fantastic work and I'll look at the information. They had a story they broke I think back in January or February around Tiger Global starting to do markdowns. And I definitely sort of keep an eye, particularly on, on the, the work sort of coming out of Silicon Valley and, and New York and those sort of tech hubs over in the States because often what starts as a trend there will then filter down into the local ecosystem. So I think that's really important, be it, you know, around valuations and what they're doing or generally it's a much larger ecosystem. So if they're having sort of regulatory changes in a certain field a few years on, we'll probably start looking at doing something similar here. So it's, it's really important to sort of stay across the work that, you know, is being done in these other areas. We've got a few minutes left, so it'd be nice to do a rapid fire round. I've got a couple of community questions or people are curious for your thoughts and, and hopefully we can get 30 to 60 second answers. What separates a great journalist from the rest in, in your mind? It has to come, well, network is probably the first thing. You have to be well networked. You've got to know people or you're not going to be able to get the sources to do the great stories. And you don't even know oftentimes when that great story is going to come. Um but it's really important to stay well connected and then being diligent as well. You've got to do your work. You've got to, I've certainly learned and as a junior journal, you sort of learn it the hard way and then you sort of get better over time, just doing your fact checking, making sure that you don't take something at face value and doing that sort of background due diligence to sort of confirm the information you're being told. All of that's incredibly important. A few of the younger listeners of this show, if you think of the university stage, even high school, they're curious how how should they decide what to read? Because in today's world, there's so much information, whether it's the AFR or the Australian or the Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, online sources, the information, TechCrunch. Do you have any direction on them on what they should look for in, in their reading material? Yeah, I think they just need to read as broadly as possible. But it is, you know, even as a journalist, I can't say that I read everything. I certainly don't. Yeah, I could spend, you'd have to have a full time job just reading the news to do that. So I would make sure that you're reading from 
a mix of publications and viewpoints as well, I think is really critical. So, you know, you might read that if you particularly want to do tech journalism, then obviously you'd pick the AFI, you'd probably do the Australian and the Age, sort of cover their tech sections, but then also look at what um, what's coming out of the Wall Street Journal and TechCrunch and States. If you want to be sort of a crime journal, then you've got to have your own lens on that as to who's going to be the main voices that you want to read. But be selective but broad so that you're making sure you're getting, you know, different, I suppose, different biases. Every Whilst everyone strives to not have any bias in journalism, people are well known that certain publications could lean certain ways on the political spectrum. So read, read across them all. One of the topical conversations at the moment is independence in journalism and, and whether it's podcasting or newsletter writing on a platform like Substack. And you're seeing that quite prominently in the US with the New York Times and a few other publications where a number of journalists have moved across and they have their own independence. What are your general thoughts on that? Do you see that coming to Australia in the next three, six, 12 months? Yeah, independence in journalism has always been a big topic for the decade I've been in and I'm sure it was predating me as well and will we'll continue to be going forth and I think it does tap into that theme you sort of mentioned earlier around decentralisation and how individual podcasters and individual sort of citizen journalists have more power now thanks to these platforms than ever before and they can self-publish and there's things like Substack and there's Medium and I, there's a citizen journalist that I follow through Instagram who is really big... Um, covering the Glenn Maxwell trial and then she's doing the Johnny Depp trial at the moment mm. and she's funded off people that, you know, send her Venmos literally off of her Instagram-based content. So mm. there's a whole new platform and audience that these people can get. But I do think there's still plenty of value to be had in the trust that these mainstream brands build up and people will, you know, as I sort of mentioned before, are quite aware that publications can fall on different parts of the political spectrum, but people need to be aware too that the journalists within those publications have their own views and their own mindsets and do strive to be independent and balanced and not put any sort of bias in, in their reporting. And so newsrooms are made up of a whole diverse amount, array of people and, and, yeah, I think that's something that sort of gets lost in the conversation too. It's easy to lash a publication if they put out an editorial that they don't that someone doesn't agree with, but those new room, newsrooms are made up of very different people. Mm. And last question, and this one's from me. Is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Oh, I think I'd like to learn. Um, oh, I'm always learning new things. It's probably the best thing about my job is getting to mm. learn about new businesses and new business models. Something where I'm trying to learn more at the moment is sort of going deeper around how the how sort of the valuation models work within these VC funds and, you know, private markets generally in, in the lens of the sort of tech sell-off that's happened in listed markets and how that's mm. going to flow through to private markets. So, yeah, we're definitely trying to get a handle on how that will play out, who's affected, if there's going to be pressure on VC funds from, you know, their limited partners and particularly the superannuation funds to have to adjust valuations outside of funding rounds. I think there's a lot of questions that we're still sort of working through there. So that's definitely a focal point at the moment. Yeah, very topical area that I'm personally quite curious about as well. So we definitely, um, I'll look out for your articles on that, <laughs> on what information you uncover. That's the finish line, unfortunately. I'd love to talk for many more hours, but hopefully that gives a bit of context to listeners and then super excited for your journey ahead. Cool. Thanks for having me. 
I hope you've taken away some valuable insights from this conversation to apply to your lives and continue to be 1% better every day. And stay tuned for the next episode in this Curiosity series where we take you inside another topic, company, or industry.